You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our sermon this morning. We'll read, first of all, from Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. The first 17 verses of 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myth, myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he has considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our text this morning comes from Peter's second letter, chapter 1, the verses 5 through 11. Our text is the verses 5 through 11, but we'll begin reading at verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and greatness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, 
and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Peter writes this letter to Christians, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, to Christians, it's pretty clear that he's concerned about something. Something is troubling him. It's not that obvious in the text before us this morning, but if you were to continue reading through the rest of this book you'd realize that Peter spends a lot of time talking about false teachings and specifically about false teachers. Paul, as he wrote to Timothy, as we read, also was concerned about false teachers. False teachers were around then. They've been around in the course of the church since then, and they continue to be around today. Peter doesn't... specifically point out who these false teachers are. But he does tell us how you can spot them, what they teach, and ultimately what will happen to them. They will be destroyed. It seems that in the world that Peter was writing to, the Roman world of the early 60s, in the year years of our Lord, there was a proliferation of false teaching and false teachers And they threatened the purity of the gospel, the purity of the message of Jesus Christ and the holiness of the church. Those two are connected. The message about Jesus Christ is on the decline, is being attacked. So probably is the holiness of the church. Now think about it for a moment and think about the times that we live in today. We live in a world of ideas a world of fast global communication. We live in a world, sadly, but truly, of false teachings and false teachers. They abound in our world, and what's different now is that they have every means of spreading their message globally. They can just go on the internet, start a website, start a blog, and immediately... They have access around the world. And added to that, as these two things are often related, we live in a world where the very word holy is almost meaningless. You use holy as an adjective to attach to another word to express how perhaps excited you are about something. That's what holy means. Purity in life. Purity in conduct, a a life of integrity, a life of wholeness, a life devoted to God. Those things are almost meaningless in our world. And sometimes they start to become meaningless in the church. So in some ways, the questions that Peter was facing and the questions that face us today in this world are the same. In a world full of ideas, in a world where false teachings and false teachers abound, in a world that's facing the tide of unrighteousness, where holiness is not honored and and valued, 
how do we live a godly life? How do we live a life that's, that's pleasing to God? How do we live in, in a way that preserves us from the attacks of false teachers and from the unrighteousness in the world? Should we distract ourselves? Is that a, a possibility? Should we stay busy? As long as we stay busy filling our lives with activities, we can keep the false teachings and the unrighteousness out of our lives. Or, should we keep up with all of those teachings? Should we know what's out there? All the latest teachings. Should we learn to dot our theological I's and cross our theological T's? Should we all become proficient debaters and apologists? Filling our minds with facts. Will that keep us safe? Or should we just simply assume that we'll be alright? Adopt a spirit of cynicism and criticism of, of others? As long as we know what's wrong with them, we can just assume that we'll be okay. Are those really answers that are going to help us in this world? Well, the answer that Peter gives to the question of what are we going to do facing false teachers and unrighteousness is what we will consider this morning. And he says what we need to do is make every effort to pursue a life of godliness. That's the answer. Make every effort to pursue a life of godliness. That's our theme this morning. And we'll see that this life is a productive life. It's not an unproductive life. It's a productive life for Jesus Christ. It's a sanctified life, a holy life, a life set apart. And it's also an eternally secure life. A life of godliness is a life that has value not only for now, but forever. Make every effort to pursue a life of godliness because it is a productive life. Now, going back to our possible answers to how we are going to face the tide of unrighteousness and false teaching, perhaps the way, this is the answer that has been given and exists, perhaps the way to escape the corruption in the world and the teaching of false teachers that threaten us is to just get busy minding our own business. As long as we sort of are so busy with our own lives and not looking beyond our own lives, the assumption goes, then we, we won't get into trouble. I think that's sort of the thought behind the saying, idle hands are the devil's playthings. As long as we're busy, we're safe. And this is an impulse that is particularly strong in our community, in our church community, in our church culture. Now, there's probably many reasons for this, and certainly working diligently for the Lord is not a bad thing, but there might be other reasons, maybe remnants of an immigrant mentality of having to come and, and work hard and finding that hard work is good. Maybe it's due to our broader culture that finds that if you're busy, you're important, you can find your worth in that, or perhaps it goes all the way back to the Reformation, to the the so-called Calvinist work ethic, that we work to serve the Lord and therefore we work hard and we always work and we always keep ourselves busy. And we find that that 
keeps us out of trouble. We get busy enrolling ourselves in, in extra learning, in sports, in volunteer activities, overtime at work. Again, not saying those are necessarily bad things to do, but there can come a mindset into that that we start to do those things because we find a certain safety in the busyness, in the distractions. And then we pat ourselves on the back because when we consider how busy our lives are, we think, well, if I'm doing all of this, I must be very productive. I must be very effective. Not only am I staying safe, but I'm being very productive. And being productive is a cardinal virtue of the Christian faith, right? Well, the Apostle Peter talks about being productive in our text this morning, and certainly he speaks positively about it. It's good to be productive. And in verse 8 he says, If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. So you don't want to be ineffective and unproductive. You want to be effective and productive in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. Except that the Apostle Peter isn't talking about activities. He's not talking about extra work. He's not talking about keeping your idle hands busy. He's talking about growth inside. He's talking about growth in Christian characters, values, growth in godliness. Peter isn't talking about productivity as it's defined by the world, or even productivity as it might be defined by our church culture. Peter is talking about productivity as it's defined by the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that is true productivity. Now before we get into those virtues that he's talking about, it's important to realize that Peter isn't talking about something that's difficult for us to access, to get our hands on. In in fact, he says in verse 3, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God's divine power has given us everything we need for this productive life. So it's right there at our fingertips. God has granted it to us. You already have all that you need through your knowledge of the gospel through the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that God gives to you. And this is made clear in verse 5 as well when Peter says, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, knowledge, self-control. So, starting with faith, add these other virtues. Peter would not have us distract ourselves, but rather go back to first principles. In the mess of of sin and false teaching, consider what you have in Jesus Christ by faith in Him. Go back to that and then add to your faith. And add to your faith goodness. What's goodness? That's moral excellence. Goodness is a characteristic of God who is pure, who always does what is right and what is good. It's, a, it's purity. It's integrity. It's a whole life that's consistent. And that's consistently holy. That's goodness. Practice purity in your life. Add to your faith goodness. And add to your goodness knowledge. This is the understanding and insight that comes from faith. It's the application of 
your acceptance before God. And it's the application of your knowledge of the world that, that God has created this world good, but it fell into sin, but He has redeemed it through Jesus Christ. This framework gives you supernatural insight into life, into relationships, into priorities. And to this knowledge, to this insight into life, add self-control. Recognize that not all of your desires are necessarily good desires. Practice self-control. And add to that perseverance in your struggle against sin. Learn to abide and to overcome. Realize that that trials are for the building up of faith. And that perseverance is grown only through going through trials. Recognize that trials are in fact good for your faith. Add to perseverance godliness. This is a a God-awareness. The awareness that, that God is your King. And that you are serving Him. Practice that in all that you do. You've probably met these people that have godliness. They, they seem to always have a, an understanding of the closeness of God, the care of God, the, the faithfulness of God as they carry out their lives, as they do whatever they're doing. Add to that brotherly kindness as the virtues become outward focused. Yes, self-control. Yes, perseverance. Yes, godliness but brotherly kindness as well. Treat everyone with the care and protection that you would a brother or a sister. And finally, of course, love. Love. Self-sacrificing service and care. This is the sort of productivity and effectiveness that can withstand the pervasiveness of sin. All of these virtues... They fill up a life of godliness. And they fill up a life that is useful for Jesus Christ. Why does Peter commend us to pursue these things? Well, he is in fact saying that our life of godliness increases our effectiveness and productivity for Jesus Christ. Notice he's not talking about what activities you're doing. He's not talking about whether you have your calendar full or not. He's not talking about a lot of the things that the world is talking about. You need to get your kids into this. You need to be busy with this. It's all about self-fulfillment. No. Peter makes us go back to first principles, back to our faith, and adding to our faith a life of godliness. If you possess these in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. So we need to ask ourselves the question, do you really want to live a life that is truly productive and effective? A life that has results that last into eternity. A life that is good, that is useful for God. Then worry less about what's going on in your calendar, at your work, in your sports league, and care more about what's going on in your heart and in your relationship with God. Put your effort toward developing spiritual gifts of of goodness and knowledge and self-control. These are the things that, that define true productivity. That make us good and faithful servants in the kingdom of Christ. Develop these through the guidance of Scripture and through the help of the Holy Spirit. 
Peter is commending these things to us because he realizes that it is entirely possible to be very unproductive and ineffective in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Notice that Peter isn't saying, if you don't add these things to your life, you're a heathen and an outcast and you're no good. But he is saying, if self-control and godliness and brotherly kindness and love are not present in your life, then you're a sitting duck for the temptation of sin. For the false teachings of false teachers. The temptations of Satan. Idle hands aren't the devil's playthings. Spiritually idle hearts are. You can have a calendar crammed full of great activities, but true productivity is found in a heart that is increasingly full of faith, of goodness, of self-control, knowledge, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. These are the things that make us effective and productive in God's kingdom. Now, this life of godliness is a productive life, indeed. When you realize things from a spiritual perspective, from the perspective of God and His work in Jesus Christ, it's also a sanctified life. Now, perhaps you're not prone to, to guard yourself by getting busy, but perhaps you're prone to guarding yourself by getting heady. This is where a lot of people with a lot of knowledge and ability to hold a lot of things in their mind can be tempted to find protection from false teachings and from sinful inclinations. You think, well, if I know the five or six theories of the atonement, and I know all the arguments for each one, I know which one is best, then I can protect myself from falsehood. If I've memorized Calvin's Institutes, and I spend an hour a day committed to studying them, I'll probably be okay. If, if I devote a lot of time keeping up to all the controversies that are stirring out there on the internet, then I'll be able to pursue a life of godliness. Many of us are probably prone to that sort of thinking. But we need to ask ourselves, will this ensure a life of godliness? Now listen to the story that I read this past week about a man named Phil. This is written by a Christian counselor. At first I was impressed. Phil was not only familiar with scripture and systematic theology, he also owned an extensive library of biblical commentaries by the who's who of theological writers. There are few places that I could go in scripture and theological references that I could make that were new to Phil. This guy knew a lot. Yet there was something dramatically wrong. Phil always seemed to be pointing out what was wrong around him, yet he was successful at very little himself. He had the theological dexterity of a gymnast, but he lived like a relational paraplegic. His marriage to his wife had been tumultuous since day one. His relationships with his children were distant at best. He was never satisfied in his career and he had been in, involved in four different churches in three decades. Does it sound like Phil has found the secret to a life of godliness? While Phil may have a great theological memory, Peter points out that people like him are in fact forgetful. Verse 9, If anyone does not have these, goodness, knowledge, self-control, etc., 
He has forgotten that he has been cleansed from past sins. While Phil may be able to to critique the theological errors of John Wesley or of Billy Graham, he is in fact nearsighted and blind, as the log in his own eye has completely fogged his view. Perhaps we can make a distinction in types of knowledge, between theoretical knowledge and and functional knowledge. Phil is able to recount everything that the Gospels might tell us about the death of Jesus Christ, but functionally, he doesn't know what that means for his life. He doesn't know that he has been cleansed from past sins so that he might live a life of godliness now. This is what Peter is saying. If we are not living godly lives now, then we have forgotten what Christ has done for us in the past And we have no vision of what Christ intends for us in the future. So what does this illustrate for us? It illustrates the importance of a godly life in the present, of a sanctified life. A godly life now reveals your connection to the past work of Jesus Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I'm reminded of a a scene in a movie I once saw where there was a man who served a life sentence in prison. He was there for 30 or 40 years. But then once he was released from prison, he couldn't in his mind get used to the fact that he was free. And he kept having to ask his superior at work or those around him if he could go to the bathroom or could do this or go there or do that. He still lived like he was a prisoner. He was so used to living like a prisoner that he continued to live like that even after he had been set free. It's possible to be set free, but to live as though such a thing had never happened. But the past work of Jesus Christ setting us free from sin needs to change how we live in the present. If in the past I was a slave to my selfish desires, that needs to change In the present. If in the past I was a slave to the opinions of my friends or of the fashion trends of Hollywood, and I lived and acted in a certain way consistent with my slavery, then the new reality of of Jesus Christ being my master needs to change and affect how I live in the present. I'm not a slave to those things anymore. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I am a slave to Him. And what does this new life look like? Well, it's one that is grounded in faith in Christ and the good news of the death of Jesus Christ for my sins, and which is constantly growing in the ongoing work of Jesus Christ in me, in moral excellence, in spiritual insight, self-discipline, perseverance, God-awareness, brotherly love, self-sacrificing service and care of those around me. Pursuing a life of godliness is pursuing a sanctified life, a life that is built solidly on the foundation of the death and resurrection of the defeat of Jesus Christ over sin. Finally, for that reason, it's an eternally secure life. This life of godliness is an eternally secure life. That's what Peter's getting at in verses 10 and 11. Now, verse 10, if we read that, therefore, my brothers, make every effort, or sorry, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. This has troubled many a Calvinist. 
Many a person who has read the canons of Dort understands what God's sovereignty in election means. They may stumble over these verses. How can I be expected to make my calling and election sure? Is that not sure in God's divine decree? Doesn't God work that out through His almighty plan in Christ? Isn't that like asking my two-and-a-half-year-old son to earn his living in the household, uh, to, to pay for housing and utilities and food and all the things that we need, something he's completely unable to do? Can you imagine a life where this sort of mentality was present? Well, actually, this is the life that we are engaged in if we think that our actions, our ideas, and our performance will somehow guarantee our election. But that's not what Peter's talking about. Rather, what Peter's talking about is the fruit of election, the assurance of election. What he's saying is that when you pursue this productive, effective, sanctified life of godliness, then you will grow in your assurance of God's calling and God's election. And the Canons of Dort actually expresses this very clearly as it talks about the assurance that believers can experience in this life, assurance that they are God's children, that they are saved. And it says this assurance in Canons of Dort chapter 5 is not produced by certain private revelations besides or outside of the Word, but by faith in the promises of God, which He has most abundantly revealed in His Word for our comfort. By the testimony of the Holy Spirit, witnessing with our spirit that we are children of God and heirs, and finally, by the serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. The pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works, a life of godliness, builds our assurance in God's calling and God's election. As you see the fruit of, of God's work in you, you, as, as Paul said, the worst of sinners, now able to serve God, now able to live a life of godliness. God calls us to change. God elects us to change. And when change is becoming real in our lives, and when godliness is growing, then God is assuring us of the powerful work that He is doing and that He has set out to do from eternity. A godly life, a life that reveals the qualities listed in our text, is a life that reveals God's Spirit working in you. It's a life that will be able to resist the, the teachings of false teachers and uh, of the pervasiveness of sin. It's a life that, while always striving for godliness and, and adding to faith, is always resting in the great and precious promises of God in Jesus Christ the promises of the forgiveness of sins, of the resurrection of the body, and of the life everlasting. Let's return to Peter. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web 
at www.langleycanrc.org.